if your words and actions are out of alignment, if your thoughts and ideas are out of alignment with your behaviors, the path to happiness is crossed with many forks. Welcome to Insert Human. This is a show that is not for everyone. It's for seekers, people like you, hopefully, who are searching for solutions to your problems, the world's problems, and everything in between. The conversations to come are going to show you how finding the truth of our humanity is the magic key to solving pretty much anything. Between my monologues, my dialogues with brilliant guests, and your good questions, you're going to learn how to insert human into everything, and in doing so, realize a better life and one day a better world. So welcome, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Insert Human. I am once again blessed to be with somebody who is brighter than me. If you read any of the stuff about the creation of the show, one of my commitments was to find people out in the world that cared about humanity as much as I do, who are also brighter than me. And Mike is exactly that. We were introduced through serendipity, which is one of my favorite ways to get introduced to people. Mike Horn is, by function, I think, a human resources organizational design expert. I'll let him add some color there. But I think he, like me, is interested in, in the ways people work the ways organization work and the way to make or help organizations and people work better. And particularly through the lens of authenticity and integrity. He's about to launch a book on May 11th titled Integrity by Design, which I cannot wait to read. Integrity being one of my favorite topics. And so Mike, thrilled to have you with us on Insert Human. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Chris Colbert, you are too generous. <laughs> I don't know. I appreciate your kind remarks, but it's me who should be honored to have this time with you today. I've read some of the great stuff that, on your website relative to integrity, and I'm looking forward to a dialogue and an exchange on that, and particularly around authenticity and authentic leadership. It's interesting. I'm a Californian. I live in the Bay Area, and I was out for a run earlier today. And I usually go out pretty early in the morning, 6 a.m. or so, five some days. Yeah. And I passed a truck today, and this truck was brightly colored. It was a truck for a vendor of Mexican ice cream products. So all covered in Spanish, very colorful. And what stood out to me, though, is there was one sentence on the entire truck, except for some of the California requirements, I think, around DMV. And it said that when there is no substitute for authenticity. And I thought, oh, that, that's sort of remarkable. I mean, to think about when we show up as our authentic selves, I mean, we are priceless. We have mm -hmm. no substitute. We are original. So that's what I'm looking forward to exploring that, how that relates to the world of work. I've been a people and culture leader in some big global corporations that have consulted around the world to executives. And that's where I'm focused now is enlarging my platform for teaching and mentoring others. Yeah. So let me, let me start by inverting what you just said and ask the question, which I've never actually pondered myself. Why do we show up as our inauthentic self? There are a number of reasons why we might not show up authentically. I think that one of the things that would have a primary consideration was environment. And how is the environment that you're in conducive or is it hostile to the authentic expression of yourself? So we want to think about environment because environment plays a big role in all of this. And then I think we... Let, turn let me ask a question there. When yeah. you say environment, you mean it's solely work environment or... 
for all environments? Like, what? Oh, Authenticity is not something that we can carry into our professional lives and think it, it's absent in our intimate lives, in our personal lives. So my book, Integrity by Design, Working and Living Authentically, is for people who really need a blueprint or who want an additional blueprint to close the gap between you know what we think we ought to be doing and what we actually do. So when I think about environment, I think about that in the in its broadest sense. But what might give us some focus is to think about that in the world of work. All of us have worked for bosses who maybe have been bullies or have lacked courage or have been exemplary and stalwart. Mm-hmm. And it's coming to terms with that because I think what we know is that in order to survive, in order to create innovation in organizations, requires enormous leadership. And the best kind of leadership, from my point of view, and I'm curious about yours, is from those who act authentically, who open up trust, who aren't guarded in their communication, who inspire, and who have a good use of themselves. Yeah, I would add to that. I mean, I totally agree with that. I have a big belief in the importance of vulnerability, which is arguably one of the most intimate forms of authenticity, which also I think flies in the face of traditional views of leadership, you know, tall, dark, or handsome or silent and, you know, always capable, never showing, then never showing vulnerability. And I think in today's world, it's actually become a marker of, of enlightened leaders. Well, there used to be an expression in a lot of corporate life, you know, if you don't know it, just fake it, right? And try to survive, keep your head down, keep your nose to the grindstone. And I think in the new world of work, where some of the same capabilities or capacities for connecting with others need to be reimagined, and an authentic leader can do just that, as he or she brings more of him or herself and brings their best to every situation. Part of what you've done is advise CEOs or leaders in organizations. Mm -hmm. Like, how do you help somebody who maybe has lived an inauthentic self Mm. find their way to their authentic self? And that's a huge, massive question. I get that we don't we we don't have (laughs) weeks to to plumb that. But how do you counsel them? How do you help them move in that regard? Yeah, for a few years, I studied with Bob Keegan at Harvard Graduate School of Education, Lisa Leahy on the immunity to change and how, you know, in many ways we're designed to protect ourselves from ever changing. And what Bob used to talk about is he thought the most of the approach was the elimination of some suffering. You know, could we eliminate some suffering in a person's lives by helping them get closer to an expression of themselves? And I've come to rethink that. I think that it's about helping people to find happiness, you know, and what I believe is that And the research clearly establishes this, is that when people have a sense that they're engaged with an authentic leader, they are generally engaged with a person who is happy, and they feel happier about that exercise of the person's agency to lead them in directions that they never saw possible, encouraging their own growth and development. So interesting. So Well, it takes so much work, and it's so rare in organizations. (laughs) <laughs> so are you, are you suggesting that the carrot you offer somebody that you're trying to help find their authentic self is the capacity to be happy? Or are you suggesting in order to get there, they need to be happy? If your words and actions are out of alignment, if your thoughts and ideas are out of alignment with your behaviors, the path to happiness is crossed with many forks. Right. And right. I think that's part of life and integrity and authenticity isn't an end state. It is a way of being and doing in the world. And it changes over life. This is almost a non sequitur 
but I read recently a study done by Prudential has revealed that 25% of all remote slash white collar workers, the minute the pandemic is over, are going to be looking for another job. 33% of millennials are going to be looking for another job. And I thought about that through the lens of alignment, through the lens of is that what I do and who I am satisfying and does it make me happy? Because I think what COVID has done is it's removed all the noise that maybe office dynamics provided. And now there's this pure question of what am I doing on a daily basis and does it really align with who and how I am or, or how I want to be? As I said, it's almost a non sequitur in the sense of leadership. I think to be an authentic leader is to be a happy leader and to be a happy leader is to have alignment between your thoughts and your actions, your beliefs and your, you know, it all has to sort of fit together. I don't want to put words in it, and that's sort of in there as a question, I suppose. <laughs> but do you agree? Well, let's think about what's happened as a result of the pandemic, and let's use the workforce that you've just described. In many ways, it's accelerated some underlying trends that were present in the American workplace, in the corporate global workplace. Right. One is an erosion of trust, an erosion of trust in our institutions, an erosion of trust in leaders. That's mirrored, certainly, for public officials, but the decline in trust of corporate individuals has also fallen dramatically. So we've got this one trend that I think perhaps, you know, to your point of people wanting to look for other work is that there is an erosion of trust. And when trust isn't present, when they can't connect, you know, there's something, I don't know if you know, the Gallup has a survey where they assess employee engagement. It's called the Gallup Q12. There are 12 questions on it. And one of them is, do you have a best friend at work? And mm -hmm. it's always been a controversial question. But I think when we consider engagement in the workplace, there's a lot of truth to that. Do you have a best friend at work? Someone who you feel has your back, someone that you can trust. And I think that's the antidote to this erosion of trust. And what we know, or what I believe, and I'm so curious about what you think, I mean, because all of us have experience with organizations, is if you can trust the person with whom you work, what kind of outcome is created? I mean, I'm going to suggest that it's a more productive, more inspiring, mm. more meaningful, more relevant outcome. I also think, you know, part of what's going on with the world of work now is the issues of privacy versus security in organizations. And, you know, we can think about that in terms of will employers require vaccination cards, vaccination results. The visual cues won't be there this time like there were as a result of the smallpox pandemic when people looked at others' faces, they looked for visible marks on arms. So, I mean, so I think we have to think about this and what does the authentic leader do in terms of create balancing the issues of privacy and security in the workplace? Yeah. It also sort of overlaps a little with this term that has been really bandied about a lot over the last probably five years of psychological safety. Um, Amy Edmondson's work, sure. Yeah. yeah. I guess actually originally derived from a study done by Google called Project Aristotle to determine what, what enabled higher performing teams. And the biggest factor was this idea of psychological safety, which subsumed a sense of trust on the team that I trust you, you trust me, regardless of hierarchy, roles, whatever, there's an implicit trust happening. 
and going back to the authentic leader. So now I'm a, I'm Chris. I'm I'm working to be authentic. I'm working to find happiness and alignment with what I do. And I recognize that my organization is not maybe where I am. I recognize that there are people who don't necessarily feel psychologically safe. What do you advise a leader to do, not about him or herself, but how do you imbue others within the organization with that with that capacity to trust? It's not a memo. I know that. <laughs> you don't issue an email. <laughs> like, what do you do? It all begins with the dissemination of values in an organization. And I think we make it too complicated for many. If you consider enterprises, I write about this in Integrity by Design, just as I write about Google's Project Aristotle and the updates that have occurred from the original study. Values play a huge role in organizational life as well as in personal life with integrity. Generally, I think the literature supports a conclusion that people of integrity have a strong moral and ethical foundation. And you see that in some big corporations like the Roche Corporation, the pharmaceutical company, the Mars Corporation, even with the Walmarts and even with Michael Dell and the Dell Foundation in terms of some of the good that's now created in the world. But among these families that run incredibly profitable companies, there's generally a pretty strong moral compass that underpins these families' values and leads them to outperform other companies in financial terms. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And these are organizations of substance, right? I mean, these aren't little enterprises. So when I think about the impact and effect in organizations you know, of every size, whether it's you and me doing some work together or a group of three or four of us creating, how we agree and come to this sense of alignment, which I think is what you, you know, you're taking us, is it, it, that is often the long-term struggle, right? Lining individual values with organizational values and where's right. the fit. Right. And that's why, at least among leaders, I think you know, we don't have enough courage you know, or trying to understand the balance between cowardliness and courage in organizations. And I think we, you know, one of the things that we also ought to talk about is the gap between executive compensation now, CEO compensation, and you know, employees. And everybody some, else. Some CEOs are making 5,000% more than an average employee in an organization. And I think at the end of the day, we, we have to ask, like, who's really serving the shareholders here? And does that foster trust? If, if I know that somebody that looks like me and maybe even has the same background as me is making 5,000 times more than me for, you know. Well, I think it's a growing issue that yeah. will continue to come to the forefront and it will, you know, encourage. I mean, can a CEO who makes, let's say, 15% more than the highest paid employee, maybe who makes a salary of a million dollars, can that person be happy in our society and live well? Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. So back to the values thing as, as a means of fostering psychological safety and engendering trust. I'll play uh, Mickey the Dunce here. Where do they come from? Does the leadership team just make up values? Or how would you advise a team to approach that hasn't articulated values to articulate them? You can see the impact of values in organizations of every size and substance. If you if you work for a leader who has a value of frugality, it'll show up in terms of how often you replace your pencils, how often you you, right. you know refresh your computers. If you work in an organization that has a value of passion, perhaps it'll show up in terms of people's work behaviors. Often the challenge, though, Chris, as you well know, is that there's a difference between what's on the walls and what's in the halls. And I think the ability to, to convey those values in today's era of work, if you can do that convincingly and well enough, then you create greater alignment, which, you know, hopefully fuels prosperity. 
Yeah. It reminds me of, uh, did you ever come across that term, the unwritten rules? Sure. Yes. It was Arthur D. Little. It was a consultant at Arthur D. Little, which I think was one of the first management consulting firms sure. at least up in the Northeast. And I forget the guy's name. It was the whole idea that organizations are not run on, but certainly impacted by these things called unwritten rules, which is just grandfathered ways, I guess in some regards, values, behaviors that nobody even knows where they came from. They've never been codified. They're not in the employee manual. They're not part of onboarding. But over time, you you come to understand that you use the pencil down to the nub before you ask for another one. Sure. Yeah. It, you know, in my field where I've been trained, we'll, we'll call that the informal system, right? Mm-hmm. And the informal system is just how things get done in an organization. And it differs often from, you know, stated policies or procedures. And that I think goes back to the observation about the unwritten rules, informal system, the way things get done. You might describe it as culture. So as you think about shifting an organization and having it become a more authentic proposition based on trust, how do you address the current state, particularly if the current state is inauthentic based on distrust, nowhere near what it is you're trying to create? I guess I'm asking a mechanistic question for a leadership team or individuals within the organization. What can you actually begin to do to, to rewrite the unwritten rules and reset the values. I'm a big believer in a force of ones, Chris, and I think this is a, an individual journey. And I think that organizations can enlarge that journey beyond individuals to concentrate and to deliver on values that do make a difference. The problem is those values have to make a difference to the extent that their window treatment or dressing, as we've seen in many organizations, Integrity is a popularly stated value in most large organizations. And yet in many, we see failures in this regard. As you know, you've used the word integrity multiple times as maybe a derivative of authenticity or sibling. I have to ask the direct question of what is it? In your view, how should we define it? How should we hold it up as a measure of ourselves? Integrity or authenticity? Let me just make sure. Integrity. Integrity. Because it's a, it's actually, I think it's actually a word that people use and they don't necessarily spend a lot of time contemplating what it really means. That's my view. I'd love to, yeah. Yeah, sure. I think that you have to think about where your definition sits relative to integrity. I think one of the expressions that's common is to thine own self be true. Mm-hmm. Well, that lets a lot of people off of the hook. <laughs> Well, if I can just interject quickly there, I, I think yes. you saw that piece I wrote called What's Your IQ? But it was integrity quotient, not intelligence Yeah, that's quotient. right, right. And I published it in writing. I, I turned it into a podcast recently, but I published it in writing a couple of years ago. And I somebody emailed me and said, you know, my definition of integrity is such that I would argue that Donald Trump has amazing integrity. I wrote back that I fundamentally disagree. But I think that person's definition was what you just said. Yeah. And, you know, mine comes certainly out of my values, right? They rise out of I'm a humanist, probably by nature and practice. I believe in the inherent worth of the individual. Right. I believe that respect is important, that every individual has dignity. And it's operating out of those values that shapes my belief in a possible world. Yeah. 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 And a world of possibilities for people to bring their best to every situation. And and I think that's what integrity by design does. It provides that blueprint for people to close the gap between, you know, what they believe and what they do. 
Yeah. So many managers are driven by scripts anymore. You know, there's an employee situation. They're driven by a script. Say this, say this, say that, and never bother to look up and acknowledge a person as someone other than their element of production. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think that's exactly right. And for, I'm just thinking about integrity for me and integrity as applied to the companies that I've run or helped others run. And I think it's the other platitude of do unto others as you would have done unto yourself. You know, it's, it's caring, caring for those around you in a way that you would want to be cared for. And I think it presumes a level of morality and honesty and ethics which are their own set of definitions for sure. But you know what I'm curious about, Chris, I mean, let's let's just think about integrity and in organizations. And, you know, what we've talked about it in in terms of our self use of self, as we've talked about being out of alignment with our words and actions. But I wonder if you've been in an organization that is out of alignment. And if it was out of alignment, what was the possibility to lead? What was the possibility to improve? What was the possibility to drive positive change? I mean, when you're misaligned, when the leadership team is misaligned. What did I do about it or what, what, what's the No, question? what's the possibility to, to, to improve? <laughs> well, I Great think there's only, there's, there's only the possibility to improve if the people in the room seek to improve. As trite as that is, there's only, it, it all is back to desire. And, you know, it reminds me of years ago, I did an exercise with a firm I was consulting with. And we, we did the unwritten rules exercise, which is asking the six leader executive team members to identify the, the attributes of how the organization worked that were unwritten and they all wrote up a list and they handed it to me and I recorded it all on a white, on a piece of, you know, flip chart paper. And the number one shared attribute of the six of them was distrust before trust. <laughs> it was the number one. And they saw it in black and white on this flip chart paper. And they're like, oh my God, because each of them thought that that was their own individual take. They thought they were the only one in the organization that thought that that was the way it worked. But when they saw that their peers all had the exact same perspective, and then we got into a question of why does this, why does this unwritten rule or unwanted value exist? And then they had to look at their own behavior. And then they were like, oh, shit, we're creating this. Hey, I write about this. I mean, integrity undergrids every interpersonal relationship we have. There's an old fable I, I repeated in the book. It's about a boy who has this collection of marbles, these beautiful marbles, and a girl who has a collection of delicious sweets. And they're envious of each other. They want a little bit of either the marbles or the sweets. So they agree to make an exchange on the next day. But the boy, instead of, you know, handing over his most precious marbles, he decides to retain a few <laughs> under his bed and you know, the next day, Classic. right. I mean, he, he and the girl meet, of course she exchanges everything. And, you know, now he's just ridden with, you know, guilt, anxiety, however you want to describe it <laughs> about it's how integrity undermines, you know, it's so basic to what we do. Yeah. What happened, you know, once you pointed that out for that group, did anything change? Well, I think the answer is mechanistically, yes, humanistically, no. And so, uh that prompted the realization both of the unwritten rules and the realization that the people in the room were the fomenters of those unwritten rules, perhaps accidentally, subconsciously, but they own, they own the fact that their behaviors were the ones that perpetuating those unhealthy unwritten rules. It then prompted a whole, as I said, discussion which ultimately led to an entire strategic plan shift a repositioning, a redefinition of values, like a bunch of mechanistic and I think important work to try to achieve a greater level of alignment in every aspect of the organization, including culture and environment. That was the good news. 
the bad news is, which is I articulated them right out of the gate, is at the end of the day, this all boils down to behavior. Like integrity is a behavior, I believe. And so if you don't change your behavior, I don't care how good the mechanisms are. <laughs> they're just mechanisms. They won't actually result in others changing their behavior, including learning to trust, learning to feel valued, learning, you know, behavior begets behavior. And this has been, I think, my biggest challenge in organizations, whether I ran them or helped others run them. And I'm sure in your roles running human resources for so many companies, getting others to change their behavior. Woof. I find it's more difficult in helping people to express what they want and what they need. Hmm. Tell me more about that. <laughs> and I think if more managers could express what they want from others and what they need from others, you know, that's one of the greatest gifts that I can bring to someone with whom I'm working, someone I'm teaching and mentoring is to help them to get clear on what they want and what they need. And I think that, you know, if anything, that drives us towards having an authentic conversation with somebody. Is that is that inability to articulate what one wants or needs a function of not being able to articulate it or not actually knowing what it is or both? It could be a knowing gap. It could be a doing gap. It could be a cognitive gap. Right. I think uh, what I write about is that it shows up sometimes attitudinally, shows up behaviorally. It shows up because of what you've learned or what you've held. Right. I mean, one of the things I've definitely seen in management, manager, employee dynamics, besides the lack of clarity coming from the manager in terms of what they want. So I totally agree with you on that. Is fundamental fear at people asking, being able to ask for what they want, even in a work context. Like one, one of the things I used to teach when I was at Harvard, teach is too, too strong a word, but encourage at Harvard is one of the greatest way to foster accountability in terms of people's performance is to tell them what you want specifically and when you want it by specifically. So Mike, I'd love a synopsis of your next book on my desk by Friday at five. And so Mike has a choice. He can serve that up Friday at five, or if he doesn't serve it up Friday at five, then I at Friday at 6 p.m. say, Mike, you know, I gave you a very clear expectation of what I wanted, when I wanted to buy, and you didn't meet it. So we need to now talk about why you didn't meet it, et cetera. But asking people, managers, to actually adopt that, call it an ability, I don't know what you call it. It was like, whoa, you want me to be that specific with somebody? Like, yes. Yeah, and I think it's you know also important. I mean, where my coaching and counseling often go is towards helping the other person to see what makes it successful for them. So if a manager, I can say, hey, I need this by Thursday at 3 p.m. And it happens that Thursday at 3 p.m. rolls around. I'm either satisfied, I'm not satisfied. The result produces a managerial reaction. I would wonder, you know, to what extent was their accountability demonstrated for accomplishment and what goes on in that environment to make, make people accountable for the results? Was the manager accountable for setting clear goals? Was the employee accountable for understanding that performance does matter? Right, 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 right. So aligning all of those systems, the politics, the culture. Yeah. So back to the book. So Integrity by Design, available on May 11th, I assume on Amazon. Of course. Of course. Can you give us the cliff note two or three? Well, things? yes. And I think where I'd like to start is in survey after survey of asking employees what matters in their leaders, integrity is the, you know, stands out. Really? Stands out in all of the research. So 
what we want to think about are what are the practical steps, both in my intimate and in my professional, in my personal and in my organizational life, what are the steps that I can do to bring my best in every situation? Let's think about three things that you can do. One is understand your values, act from a strong moral and ethical foundation. Don't cheat, don't lie, don't skimp, all of those uh, attributes. The second thing is work on establishing trust. And the way that you can do that is by having some self-disclosure. Self-disclosure enables people to get to know you. And that is what enables uh, conversation to happen. The clearest advice for I can give anyone to begin to establish trust is to say hello. <laughs> it's the best check-in that we have and, you, you know, take it from there. Don't say hello to a person first. So and the third thing that I'd offer is that to anticipate a result and that result that you can anticipate with improved authenticity in your work is you can anticipate inspiration, fun, and achievement. Right. right. Funny, there was a period in an organization that I ran not that long ago that we, there was about a six month period where the trust quotient went through the roof and people that worked in the organization saw it, felt it, talked about it, marveled at it. I mean, I literally had people after I left the organization talk to me about that moment and it, it, it was only about six months, but better than zero. And the, the joy factor, the happiness factor was through the roof. There we go. So was the productivity factor. Back to, you know, where we were earlier, Chris, around the happiness factor, reduction of suffering, substitution of happiness. You know, Marshall Goldsmith, the world's number one coach and author of a couple, you know, I mean, great books, New York Times bestsellers, Triggers, Mojo, What Got You Here, Won't Keep You Here. What he said about my book is that integrity by design is a lesson in authenticity. Hmm. And if people read it, it may change the way they lead in life. What a lovely compliment. What a lovely compliment. And I should probably end there, but I have one more question. Sure. Yes, Chris. That we talked about when we talked a few weeks ago, and that is this whole question of the future of work and remote you know, there's this one camp that believes COVID has created this scenario where 90% of all white collar workers will never have to go back to the office. There's another scenario that says, well, they're going to go back to the office, but they're going to go in a, in a hoteling fashion where there aren't going to be offices or cubes anymore. It's just going to be sort of open and, and people will find their way or whatever. And I would just love, you know, I have a point of view on it, but I would love to hear your point of view. And on how the future is going to unfold in terms of organizational structure relative to what's come out of COVID. Mm. Well, I work in an organization with a lot of white collar workers and some of them have, everybody certainly has been working, but people with chemists, biologists have been working in laboratories all throughout the pandemic crisis. So there's wide variation in how we think about, you know, who occupies what roles, doctors, nurses, all the allied health professionals who have been working throughout the pandemic. So for this other, you know, category of people, people who haven't been affected, restaurant workers, so many others in the service sector who haven't been brutally impacted by the pandemic, we think about this other group of folks who have, for the most part, been working from home. There's going to be great variation. I think it'll differ from organization to organization. But what will help and what will accelerate performance in organizations is a movement towards network thinking and realizing the connections that we have with others and with other organizations are 
the power beyond command and control, which is why authentic leadership, I think, becomes so increasingly important as leaders need to find new ways to engage and motivate others, given all the factors we discussed earlier around the erosion of trust and privacy and security issues and any number of factors, including the robotization of work and introduction of our official intelligence into the systems that many people interact with. Right. I mean, Mike, does it become, does achieving authentic leadership or organizations call it built on integrity, does that all become harder in a virtual or networked distributed model? I loved uh, an old, old book, The Road Less Traveled. And Scott Pekka, the first sentence in the book is life is difficult. <laughs> there you go. So this, uh, Short, you know, this, and qu- yeah, this quest for meaning and integrity, it's not an end state. Integrity gets tested in ways often for people, particularly in organizations. Right. So it may be harder, but that doesn't change the necessity of it. It doesn't change the outcomes that can produce, which are what you described, the fun, the profitability. Yeah, yeah. Okay, on that note, just a reminder, May 11th is the big day, balloons and bubbly for Mike's first book. But he also informed me earlier that it it's actually on the way to a second book, which will be coming out probably in about a year, year and a little. Mm-hmm. And what's that topic? Authentic change. We're going to continue to explore the same topics, but... How do managers in everyday settings, I mean, particularly in the new world of work, lead people to improvement and change? I love that. I mean, it's it's very near and dear to me in terms of, you know, at the end of the day, this is all about us. This is all about humans. This is all about our behaviors. And this is all about helping each other evolve. And so, Mike, thank you for the good work that you were doing, helping us figure all that complicated stuff out. And thank you, Chris. I mean, I felt a really heartfelt connection. Really appreciate your interest and engagement. And I look forward to meeting you one day, hopefully not too, not too far from now. All right. That sounds great. Take care. All right. Thank you so much, Chris. Right. Thanks for listening today. If you're in search of more opportunities to realize positive change in your life or work, and you find what I have to say helpful, you can always subscribe to my show, check out one of my new salons that are weekly virtual gatherings of like-minded folks. You can read some of my writings or just listen to one of the talks that I've given around the world over the last couple of years. And you can do it all at chriscolbert.com. While you're there, make sure to sign up for my ongoing email updates. When you do, you'll receive a free copy of the first chapter of my about-to-be-published book, Technology is Dead. Again, it's all available at chriscolbert.com. Thanks again for listening today, and I look forward to connecting more in the days ahead.